there. Just a reminder, in your mailboxes, there will be, you'll find little uh, Christmas postcards. We, uh, we put two to every mailbox, and we're going to uh, just invite you and challenge you to find someone who doesn't have a church home and uh, give, uh, give that card to them and invite them uh, to Harvest Church. All the information is on there. Uh, this is a wonderful time of year. People are maybe um, more inclined to go to a worship service, and we would love to have um, many of our uh, neighbors and co-workers from the community uh, join us in worship. Uh, we are, uh, we're part of the people now who are ambassadors calling people to come and be reconciled to God. So it's a very simple thing to do. Uh, you can think about uh, prayerfully who you would like to give those cards to. If you need more, I encourage you to... Um, to ask, and we do have more available. Studies show that uh, if people are invited, they are often very willing to come to church. They simply need uh, to be invited. And so just uh, want you to prayerfully um, think about who you're going to give those cards to, and um, let's see what the Lord might do with that. Luke chapter 18. If you remember last week, uh, we looked at uh, the great encouragements to prayer, as Jesus told this parable about a persistent widow and, and then highlighted uh, this wonderful God we have who, who is passionate about justice, who loves people, and we come to him with magnificent standing as his elect children. And so we have great encouragements to prayer. Well, here uh, in our text this morning, we find that not everyone uh, who prays is heard. And so let's give our attention to God's word. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. He also told this parable... To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Well, God in heaven, thank you for uh, this precious word. I thank you, Lord, that you delight to give your blessing to your word and you create a universe and you build up a church, you accomplish your will through your word. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear it. I pray that we would hear the voice of our master here and love him and follow him. In Jesus' name, amen. As Jesus continues teaching us about prayer, um, one of the things we're, we're going to see in this text this morning is that Jesus wants us to know that not everyone who prays is heard. Uh, there is a way of praying that God does not hear. A Proverbs speaks of this, Proverbs 15 verse 8, where it says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. And there's other texts that you could find that say the same thing, that um, those who pray with a wicked, callous, a heart that has no concern for God, those prayers are not heard. The prayer of the upright is heard. Now, the, the people that Jesus is talking to, they, they know this. They believe this. This is one of their core convictions. 
That God hears the prayers of some and not the prayers of others. He, he delights in the righteous and he is far from the wicked. The problem is that they were fundamentally uh, mistaken concerning who is who. They didn't understand righteousness the way God does or wickedness the way God does. And, and so they're confused about this and Jesus is going to expose that. We can easily um, have the same misconceptions. If I were to ask you uh, this morning, uh, what kind of person does God delight in, uh, the pastor or the drug dealer? Boys and girls? Well, I think we'd be inclined to say, of course, we know there's a trick here, so we're not going to fall for it, but we'd be inclined to say, well, probably the pastor. Uh, Who is God going to listen to in prayer, the abortionist or the nice lady that leads the, the Bible study? We tend to assume it's, it's that God leans in that direction. He hears the prayers of the moral people, the religious people, the, the good people. And that the way to find favor with God then is to sort of in your life lean in that direction. To be moral, to be, uh, do certain things, believe certain things, uh, go to church, subscribe to certain truths or doctrines. Now, God does delight in his people, and he, and he delights in his work of grace in his people. But in our story this morning, Jesus wants us to know unequivocally that there is one and only one way to find favor with God. And all of those other things are, all those other attempts, right, to find favor with God are hopeless. There's only one way. And the people who find that way are often not the people you would expect to be there. It's a shocking story. But let's just follow along. The, the, Luke gives us a clue in verse 9 what Jesus is doing here. He, he's talking to people who were self-righteous and they, they, trust, they treated other people with contempt. They trusted in themselves. Well, as Jesus tells the story, they don't have that little byline. They don't have the synopsis. They're just listening to Jesus tell a story. Let's do the same. Two men went up to the temple to pray, Pharisee and a tax collector. And immediately everybody knows what's going on. We have a profound contrast here between these two people. Uh, In our current church climate where we've heard about these guys, the Pharisees, it's really um, difficult for us to hear this story the way that Jesus' original audience. Because when Jesus says a Pharisee goes to the temple to pray... um, People aren't offended by that. Uh, People know that's what the Pharisees did. We think of them as just super religious bad guys, but that's not how they were viewed by their friends and neighbors. People, I'm sure, thought that these guys were a little over the top, and they were were somewhat self-righteous, but they're serious about godliness. They care about the law of God. Ferguson says Phariseeism was essentially a conservative holiness movement. What, you know, we like, we like those words. Conservative, yeah, that's a good word. A holiness, that's a good word. That's what the Pharisees, is, a conservative holiness movement. The name is probably derived from the root word that means to separate. So the Pharisee was a man deeply concerned about personal and religious holiness in the details of life. So in the eyes of the community, they're, they're 
They're good guys. They're, they're, they're just interested in moral reform. They want Israel to be great again. And the way that's going to happen is as people get serious about the laws of God. And they're going to lead the way. That's what they're doing. So, so example A, over here in right corner A, we have a, a really impressive, morally serious man, the Pharisee. And then over here in, in corner B, we have the degenerate, the publican, universally despised in the Jewish community, as you, as you know the story. Uh, Israel is a nation under Roman oppression. They hate the, their oppressors. And yet there are Jewish men who have collaborated with the Roman power and they collect taxes. Jewish people collecting taxes, which would be bad enough, but the problem is that these, these guys are notoriously unethical. They're helping themselves. They're providing for themselves. Tax collectors would be wealthy people, and they got their wealth from the backs of God's people. If you want a sort of a parallel, think of, of a Dutch or French citizens in World War II who um, collaborated with the Nazis and were secretly spying on their neighbors and, and leading some of them to be dragged away to their death in the concentration camps. Just wicked people. Utterly despised by the community. And so Jesus has, has, has chosen the, the greatest contrast that they knew about. A paradigm of morality over here and the very image of soulless greed and covenantal treason over here. And everyone would know which man God favors. It's not, a, it's not even up for debate. <clears throat> so these men are in the court and they're praying. And we have two prayers, two, two approaches to God. The first, the prayer of the righteous man. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. Now again, that, that sounds offensive to us because we're trained to hear it offensively. Uh, Calvin says, if you, if you just take it at face value, this is a normal Pharisee's prayer. He ascribes his spiritual privileges and his moral advantages. He says thank you. Right? He's, not, he's not denying that God has, has helped him do this. And so he thanks God. I, you just need to see that he's sincere. He's not just this, this fake, this phony, this man who's pretending. In his mind, he's, he's in, incredibly sincere. The problem, you see, is how does this man see himself as he stands there praying to the living God? How does he think of himself? Well, he thinks of himself as unique. Thank, he thanks God. I am not like other men. That could be the banner, maybe, that you'd put over this guy's life. Not like other men. He gauges his morality according to other people. That, that is such a natural human thing to do. Uh, people do it all the time. You know, I'm, I know I'm not perfect, as though someone were charging them that they were. Uh, I, um, I could do better, but I'm not like that guy. I'm not doing those things. And that's exactly what the Pharisee does. I'm not like, like those guys, the, the extortioner. I'm certainly not, not like that guy, the, 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 adulterer, the adulterer. And most positively, I'm not like that Loser over there in the corner, the tax collector. Lord, I'm different. I'm 
not just set apart different, I'm better different. And the evidence is I fast twice a week. The law required fasting once a year. But the Pharisees, you see, they're, they're very serious. And I tithe of everything that I get. They're only required to tithe on their, on their produce, their, their, their agricultural, not on their income, but, they're, but, they're, but the things that they produce. And, but he, he tithes on everything. You see, he's, he's convinced in his own mind that, that he's a, a very good man and, and better than almost any other men. And that assumption is so na- native to him that if you would have challenged him on it, if, you'd, if you would have said to him, you know, you're not really any different than anyone else, it, it would have shocked him. He would have been utterly surprised that you, would, you, you could imagine that, that he was not better. And his inner assumption about his moral superiority is ex- reflected in his external stance. Notice Jesus says he's standing by himself. He prefers his own company. He's careful not to get too close to less spiritual, less serious people. And in particular, not too close to the immoral degenerate over there who's beating his breast. One of the dangers that Christians can easily fall into is is exactly this. To begin to assume that um, our difference, and there should be a difference means superiority. And of course, you see, we could, um, we could say, well, we give the credit to God. But the truth is that there's a part of us that there's a, there's a secret assumption that we're not just different, we're better. And one of the external signs of that internal assumption is when we prefer to stay away from really messed up and flawed people. When we're just more comfortable with ourselves with people like us where do you tend to move when a really broken and a really wicked person shows up is your is your tendency to move that way or to move toward the person it's something i think we need to take seriously to heart who do we move towards because it's saying something about our stance Internally, Ferguson says the instinct to look down on others is one of the most obvious telltale signs of a heart from which legalism has not yet been fully or finally banished. It implies that we have merited the grace we've received. That there's something about us that actually we deserve credit with God. That God's been kind because we've been such. And so that's how the Pharisee comes. He comes to God confidently, confident in his morality, confident in his superiority, confident in his religious seriousness, confident in his obedience, and confident that the Lord is happy to see him. He stands with hands outstretched uh, and, and eyes lifted up, which is how people prayed. But he's very confident. He's in his element, standing there in the courtyard, and um, very confident man. And a very self-satisfied man, notice he doesn't ask for anything. Did you notice there's, there are no petitions in this prayer? He, he's standing before the maker of heaven and earth, the giver of all good and perfect gifts, who delights to give good gifts to his children, and he has nothing to ask for. How, how is that possible? Well, the, the truth is, you see, he doesn't really, he doesn't need anything. 
Not fundamentally. His, his, basic, spirit, his basic physical needs are, are, are met. He's doing all right. He's satisfied with his religion. He's certainly satisfied with himself. And so he doesn't have anything really to ask for about himself. And you see, because he doesn't care for other people, he doesn't have anything to ask for them either. If he was a truly godly man, standing in that temple court and seeing the guy over there beating his breast, the local tax collector, what would a, what would a really godly man have done? He would have said, Lord, it's Bob, the tax collector. I am so thankful he's here. Lord, magnify the, the glory of your grace. Rescue Bob. Rescue this wicked man. Show yourself to be mighty again in his salvation. Lord, it would be such a, a tribute to your name and, and such a blessing to Bob. Save him. That, that's what he would have prayed as, if he was a truly godly man. But he has no requests, not for himself, not for anyone else. And friends, again, this is a sign of a church community that's infected with legalism and that we... We don't sense a great need to pray. We know we should. We know it's a, it's, it's a religious obligation. But the truth is we're pretty much set. We have our families. We have our homes. We have our friends. We have our jobs. We're satisfied with our religion. We're only mildly dissatisfied with ourselves. We don't really have a burden for the glory of God to be magnified in the world in which we live. We, we're not really that concerned about the lost people around us, and so there's just not a lot of urgency to pray. We're quite satisfied with things as they are. Who does that sound like? That's, that's the Pharisee. That's legalism functioning right here in River City. Um, what's your prayer life like? Do you need God really to do much of anything? I mean, do you come to God burdened with requests? Do you, do you sense a need to talk to him? And then Jesus points us to the other man, the, the prayer of the repugnant man. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. His, his stance, he's, he's standing far off. Not by himself, but far off. Far off from what? The temple. He's in the court, but he's back in the corner. He, he doesn't really dare to come much nearer. Why? Well, because he's burdened with a sense of his sin. And he knows that God is a holy God. And God as a holy God is a consuming fire of what is sinful. Of what is wicked. And he's wicked. So he cannot even lift his eyes, though that is how people normally prayed. He, he beats his breast in grief, in sorrow. How could he have been so stupid? How could he have rebelled against God in such a grotesque way? How could he have wasted his life like this? And what possible hope was there for his eternal soul? The Holy Spirit, you see, has done a work of conviction in this man's life. A necessary work of conviction. How does he see himself? Well, he, he's, he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, we got to, 
we need to re, um, reclaim that word. Because sinner to us means something different than what it meant in the Bible. Sinner to us means basically normal human being. Someone who doesn't do what he ought to do and sometimes does things that he should not do. We freely amongst ourselves confess to being sinners. But that's, that's not how the publican used the term. It's not how the Bible uses the term. When the Bible speaks of a sinner, it's talking about um, someone who is engaged in, in obvious, grievous, blatant wickedness in rebellion against God and under the judgment of God. So Genesis 13, 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 1 Samuel 15, 8, God says, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. So sinners, that term belongs to people who are flagrantly disobedient and rebellion, have no care for God, no concern for his ways, and are ripe for condemnation. They're, they're in Sodom before the fire falls. They're, they're the, the Amalekites before the judgment comes. Well, this man says, that's me. Yes, I'm Jewish. I live in Jerusalem. But I'm the Amalekite. I, um, I, I belong to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's his sense. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He, he, he clearly understands that, that his life has been an offense to God and he is ripe for judgment. He knows this. Hence his request. His request, God, be merciful to me. And the word be merciful here is, is a powerful word. It's uh, it's not the normal word that you find for mercy. And so uh, in Luke 18, we'll get uh, just a little bit farther here, 38, we have the blind man in Jericho, and he says, uh, you know, son of Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a different word. What that word means is have pity, have compassion, see my uh, blindness and, and help me. Uh, that's the normal word. So when God has mercy and, and pity on his people, it's the, same, it's the same idea. Well, this is not that word. It's related, but it, it's different. This word is mercy by means of propitiation. Big word, I know, but that's, that's what it means. It's, the only other time you find it in the New Testament in this form is Hebrews 2.17 that says Jesus came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So what does that word mean? Well, uh, Robert Raymond explains it this way. Propitiation is the turning away of God's judicial wrath by taking away sin through sacrifice. That's propitiation. The turning away of judicial wrath by taking away sin through sacrifice. Now, why would the man ask this? Well, remember where he is. He's in the temple courts. He's there to pray, most likely at the time of prayer. The Jewish, um, every day, morning and evening, were times of prayer. In the morning, when the sun first began to light up the sky and the uh, trumpets would sound, the temple gates would open, people would, would, uh, would flood into the temple court, and the worship service would begin. When you walked into the temple court, you would notice a great 
a bronze altar. And you would see alongside of that altar a lamb tied there waiting for the service. And as the service began, the, um, the priest would move up the steps of the altar preparing it and someone would go to that little lamb and take its head, lift it up, exposing the neck and take the knife and slit it. It would be slaughtered there in front of everyone. And the blood would be gathered in a bowl and part of the service would be then the, the, the lamb would be hung on a hook and flayed according to the very specific rules that God had given. The blood would be um, sp- sprayed with a, with a hyssop branch uh, or just splashed against the base of the altar. And then the sacrifice would proceed. That's the worship service. Morning, evening, Morning, evening, and as that lamb is, uh, when the lamb has been sacrificed, coals would be taken from the altar, brought into the temple, put on the altar of incense, and uh, the incense would be poured, and as that cloud of incense and smoke ascended, that was signifying the prayers of the people. But you see, you could only offer that incense on coals taken from a sacrifice. He knows what's going on, right? This is a Jewish man. He knows that a lamb is being slain so that God's people can receive mercy. God says in Luke 17, 11, uh, when he talks about why this, why this ceremony, why this blood, Jesus, God says in Luke 17, 11, the life is in the blood and I've given it, this life, to you, Uh, on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood matters because it it signifies that a life has been offered up, and and that life belongs to God. It's not the lamb's life, ultimately. It's certainly not the life of the people. God gave that life, and God took that life, and he gives that life for the people so that their sin can be atoned for and the judicial wrath of God could be turned away. And you see, as that man stands there and he sees this happen again, he's not just asking God to have compassion on him. He's not asking God to overlook his sin. What he's specifically asking is for God to deal with his sin. He recognizes that in that sacrifice, God is revealing himself to be willing to forgive, willing to atone, that God is willing to offer a substitute in his place, that a death must occur because the soul that sins shall surely die, but God has provided a substitute, and in that substitute, in that sacrifice, God is willing to be propitiated. He's willing to turn his judicial wrath aside and pour out his mercy and love. And so as that man sees the blood being sprinkled against the altar, he cries out, oh God, let it be for me. Let let that blood be for me. I I cannot change myself. I cannot heal myself. I have nothing to bring to you. I've got nothing to plead save the blood of the lamb that you've provided. Let that blood be for me. That's what he's asking. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And Jesus emphasizes this man rather than that man. This man, the morally repugnant man. He went home acquitted that there was a sentence rendered in the court of heaven, innocent of all charges, righteous in the sight of God. 
The, the, the righteous man, Jesus says, did not go home justified. That though he rendered a verdict on his own life, um, he, he did not receive the verdict from heaven. There are people oftentimes in the church who have rendered a verdict on their life. I am innocent, but they've not received the verdict from the court of heaven. This man, the, the, the repugnant man, the wicked man, went home justified. And the other man, the self-righteous, self-confident man, went home still buried in his sin, still under the wrath of God. Now, why does Jesus tell this story? Because he's talking to, to people who think that they're fine. They're fine. They're Jewish. They're children of Abraham. They, they observe the laws. At least they try to, and, and they have the temple there. It, everything that, that they know suggests to them that it's fine with their soul. They're okay with God. And yet Jesus knows the truth. He knows that they're going to reject him. He knows that they, the, the truth is they, they really don't love God. They love their righteousness more than they love God. They, they are self-righteous. They have contempt for other people, specifically non-Jewish people. And they need to hear the gospel. They need to understand that there's one way and only one way to come into the presence of God, and that is through the sacrifice of the lamb, the life that God gives. And friends, it's the same for us. There's only one way to be justified in God's sight, and we can miss it. We can be right in the presence of it and miss it. I was reading this week um, some from the Marrow of Modern Divinity, an old uh, book written, I think, 16... Um, 45. And um, Edward Fisher, the author, gives this personal testimony. Listen to what he says. I was a professor of religion at least a dozen years before I knew any other way to eternal life than to be sorry for my sins and ask forgiveness and strive and endeavor to fulfill the law and keep the commandments. According as Mr. Dodd and other godly men expounded them, but Mr. Dodd was apparently a, a, a notable a teacher, preacher, um, had the nickname Decalogue Dodd. Decalogue Dodd. He loved the Ten Commandments. I remember I was hopeful that I should at last attain to the perfect fulfilling of them. And in the meantime, I conceived that God would accept the will for the deed. That, that God knew that I wanted to do the right thing and that God would accept that even if I didn't actually do the right thing. Or what I could not do, Christ had done for me. So what I failed to do, Jesus would make that up. Then he says, the Lord was pleased to convince me that I was yet but a proud Pharisee and showed me the way of faith and salvation by Christ alone. You see, it's, it's a fascinating insight, and, and it's a prevalent tendency for people to think that a way into eternal life is go to church, feel sorry when you sin, ask forgiveness, strive to do better. And what you lack, Jesus will make up. But that's Phariseeism. You see, we all recognize that we cannot be saved by um, our obedience. The Pharisee thought that. That's his law. But, but a lot of people think that we can be saved by our best efforts and then sorrow when we fail. As long as you feel bad, as long as you ask forgiveness, what more could God require? Well, that's, that's just another law. That's just trusting again in 
what you can do and what you do. That's not how the publican came to the issue. He recognizes that the law as it stands, as, a, as, a, as a, the revelation of God's holy will condemns him. And no matter how he would, might try to keep it, he cannot pay for what he's done. He deserves to be condemned. And, and he's clearly sorry. He's heartbroken because of his sin. But he does not bring that as, as a ground for God's mercy. He doesn't plead his grief. He pleads the blood of the Lamb. And he went home justified. See, friends, we can be right in the presence of the gospel and miss the gospel. Because we are natively inclined toward legalism. We would like to do it ourselves, and we would. We it is so humbling, it's so embarrassing to to acknowledge that you have nothing to bring as grounds why God would receive you and show favor to you. You, you got nothing. It's it's very humiliating, particularly if you've been born and raised in the church and you know your doctrines and and you try to live a good life, and and now God's going to say none of that accounts for. For favor, that doesn't, that doesn't count as some basis that you can stand on and expect God to bless you. And, and God says, that's right, it does not count as a basis upon which you can expect God to show favor to you. It doesn't count because it's not sufficient. One thing and one thing alone, you see, counts. Have you come to the lamb that was slain for your sin, and do you plead him? My question to you this morning, friend, are you justified? Are you justified today? Are you confident that you're justified? In other words, has God rendered a verdict on you that you are innocent of all guilt, that you are acceptable in his sight, that nothing stands between you and the living God, that the law has no charge against you. You are righteous in the sight of God. Are you justified? Well, how would you know? Have you come like the publican and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I got, I got nothing to bring except... Your word, God, that those who come and believe in Jesus Christ, you promise that, that that person will be saved. You promise that the person who comes with nothing to offer except their need and, and their sin, but that person who comes and believes the gospel, that God is willing to justify the ungodly and delights to acquit the sinner. Lord, I, I, that's all I have is, is my confidence that that is true. And so I come. Without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. I don't, know, I don't know where you are in your heart today. If you're an unconverted person, I would plead with you to deal with this Jesus. He is the propitiation, the only way you can have favor with God. Maybe you're a, a, a converted person, but you've just fallen into legalism. You've, fallen, you've, you've gotten comfortable with thinking of yourself as better than the, the hoi polloi out there. The people, the masses, the unconverted. And you need God to just do a work of grace in your life again to make, help you recognize that, that, that your only plea is the exact same plea as this man. 
and then believing in Jesus, you see, and trusting in, in what he's accomplished, that his blood is able to turn away the wrath of God and to make us fully accepted forever in the sight of God, that that becomes the new joy or the renewed joy in your life. And you become a person more and more of prayer because you love the Lord your God. And you become a person more and more of prayer because you love your neighbor. And you recognize that it is grace and grace alone that's called you to him and allows you to stand. May God grant it. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we confess our legalism. We confess our smugness. We confess our self-righteousness our self-satisfaction. We confess, Lord, how easy we exalt ourselves and look down with contempt on other people. We confess how offensive we can be in our religion and our self-righteousness, our self-satisfaction. How wicked it is to deny the gospel in such profound ways. Father, you know our hearts. Lord, some here today have maybe been trusting in their righteousness all their life long, trusting in their good attempts, trusting in their intentions, trusting in the, the, the religion they have and the things they do, hoping that it's enough. Lord, help us to hear today it's not enough. It'll never be enough. So that we come as beggars, bankrupt to the throne of mercy and plead the one and only thing that can give us life. The sacrifice of your son on the cross. We acknowledge that, Lord, could our zeal no longer know, could our, would our tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone, you must save and, and you alone. And Lord, I, I pray for those of us who have been justified and yet who've gotten smug and self-content and self-righteous and wicked, I pray, Lord, you'd forgive us and bring us back to the gospel, bring us back to the cross, bring us back to Jesus, where we can taste again the wonder of his grace and be transformed by it. And once again, Lord, delight in you and be confident in our salvation and love our neighbors. So, Lord, please do this work. Don't leave us in our self-righteous contemptible state. Don't leave us, Lord, dead to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But wake us up. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, for his glory, for his kingdom. Amen.